The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us, and I'm very excited to have our guests today, David Goldberg and Mark Summerville. Uh, Dave is the president of Big Beacon, a nonprofit organization founded as a movement for the transformation of engineering education. And Mark Summerville is a professor of electrical engineering and physics at Olin College, where he also serves as the associate dean for faculty affairs and development. And they are the authors of a brand new book that's hot off the presses called A Whole New Engineer, Trans- the tr- uh, Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. And gentlemen, welcome to Go Green Radio. Glad to have you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jill. Thank you. Well, I read the book cover to cover with rapt attention because not only uh, is my husband uh, trained in electrical engineering from the University of Illinois, which is where uh, you were a professor, David, um, yeah. but I have kids going to college and I'm pushing them in that direction as well. So engineering education is something that I'm very, very interested in myself. But before we talk about some of your specific ideas to revolutionize engineering education, let's talk about why such a revolution is needed in the first place. I'd like to know what challenges you foresee in the 21st century that will challenge engineers in new ways. Well, I, think, I, I guess maybe one way to start thinking about that is just to think about some of the things that Tom Friedman has said lately about the world being hot, flat, and crowded. I mean, if we as a society face um, some enormous challenges with regard to um, climate change, with regard to sort of how technology is impacting society and the sort of growing inequality that's associated with that accelerating technological change. Uh, there's a sort of set of political instabilities that are associated with those changes. So we're certainly at a point in history when uh, things both look pretty scary, uh, but when all, there are also some really interesting and exciting opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, if you, and if you think about, if you think, you know, we're on a planet with about 7 billion people, and, and if you go back, say, pre-technology to, uh, say, go back to agrarian times, turn, you know, turn the time, you know, go in your time machine back 6,000 years, and you look at the carrying capacity of the planet back then, we're, you know, you're talking 100 million people, so... 6.9 billion of us depend on technology for our very existence. So it's not um, the, the the challenges for for the engineer of the future are enormous and mm-hmm. and 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 ex- exciting and as Mark said, both and scary too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What, go ahead. Yeah. Well, go ahead. One of the, I think one of the interesting things about the challenges that we're going to face in the 21st century is the extent to which there are challenges that have both technical and political and social and economic aspects to them. You know, the National Academy of Engineering has identified these 14 grand challenges that we face as a, 
as a planet for the next century. And there are things like how do we commercialize solar energy? How do we manage the carbon? How do we manage the nitrogen cycle? How do we provide clean water to all the people on the planet? And all of these problems are really complex technical problems, but they also are problems that have important and critical political and social and economic aspects to them. And so the kinds of problems that engineers are going to have to deal with in the next century are the problems of actually allowing us to continue as a species, but they're problems that are not just technical, that they're, they're going to require us all working together to solve them. Well, and I think what was really great, that the points that you brought out in, in your book, was that it's not going to be enough for engineers just to understand the technical piece of what they're working on. They're going to have to understand the human, uh, the political, the um, entrepreneurial side and aspects of, of their work as well. I recently went back to my alma mater, the University of Illinois, and spoke to a group of PhD candidates in electrical engineering. And as an English major from the University of Illinois, that was kind of uncharacteristic. But the students themselves had invited me back. And many of them were working on energy technologies. They were very excited about things they were doing with solar and wind and and geothermal. Um, But one of the things that that I brought up to them was, you know, you guys are so excited and I'm excited for what you're doing, but you're you're trying to help us become less reliant upon foreign sources of fossil fuels, and that's awesome. But consider where the rare earth minerals for some of your technology is coming from, and are you, you know, are you sourcing from uh, different countries? Are you sourcing from this country? You know, are you? Do you understand the geopolitical aspects of, you know, where the raw materials are coming from? Even though, you know, for for now. The battle cry is, you know, get us off of foreign oil. Make sure yeah. that we're not replacing one dependency with with another. Um, yeah, that's a, Jill. That's a really great point. And and sometimes uh, the deans of engineering like to talk about the the O's. We have lots of O's. We have um, nano technology. We have bio technology. And uh, from times past, we have environmental uh, technology. We have. Uh, and then we have inflow. But if you think about those, the O's are quite different. Um, and so the inflow is different from the nano and the bio. Mm-hmm. And actually, in viro is different, too, in, the, in that um, there is this strong uh, human and social component, as Mark was saying. And so there's sort of a missing O, and it's, and, and, um, it's, it's homo sapiens or... <laughs> Or socio technology, and to, so to, to the extent that we 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 want to uh, educate engineers of the future, we want them to 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 be technically as as capable as they've been in the past, but also be aware of the human dimension of of of, of what they're doing. Engineering is a is a team it's team sport. It's by and for people. Absolutely. You know, in the latter part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, we've seen a lot of innovations take the form of technologies and devices that were entirely new to the human experience. And I'm wondering if you expect engineers to be called upon to continue that stream of newness, or do you expect that engineers might be called upon to create new ways of doing old things, like uh, new ways of delivering electricity, water, and other services to more and more people with fewer and fewer resources? Well, I think the answer is yes, Jill, uh, both. I, I, there, there's not any question that um, engineers will continue to imagine the unimaginable. That's, that's something that I think is, is core to engineering. But I think it's, it's also the case that if you think about um, us as a society and you think about the extent to which we've not really um, address the bottom of the pyramid, you know, sort of 90% of the world's population that needs those things like 
clean water and electricity and so on. There are enormous opportunities in that space as well. And I think what's, what's interesting is the extent to which imagining the unimaginable also tends to help to address the bottom of the pyramid. I mean, a good example of that is the extent to which the cell phone, you know, which when it was first developed was this kind of thing that Gordon Gecko would have and no one else mm-hmm. would have, <laughs> is now something that's enabling um, rickshaw drivers in India to, to increase their income substantially by, by being able to sort of use an Uber-like service to identify new customers. So it's, it's interesting how those technologies that we maybe start thinking of as being the newest of the new turn out to be the ones that actually can enable people at the bottom of the pyramid to change their lives in really important ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, some of the things that we talk about on Go Green Radio quite a bit um, has to do with, you know, infrastructure here, even in this country. I mean, there was a time when we had, you know, the gold standard in electricity transmission. Uh, not so much anymore. Same thing with water. Mm-hmm. In different parts of the country, our water infrastructure is, is failing to meet the needs of the people that we have, let alone the people we'll have by the turn of the next century. So I think, you know, from just the everyday layman's point of view, we're really going to be counting on our engineers to figure out some of these these issues, even things that we currently take for granted, although those of us in drought states like California, where I live, are not taking our infrastructure for granted yep. the way we used to. Um, you know, I watch cable news probably as much as anybody else. And when I start to see companies like ExxonMobil uh, running ads on cable news, encouraging kids to go into engineering, I can't help but wonder why. And so I thought I'd ask you two while you're on with us, is there a shortage in engineers in the U.S.? Well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think, first of all, when, you know, when someone's running an ad, you know, that's not altruism on the part of an oil company. If they're running an ad for engineers, they, they actually would, they need more engineers to make their businesses successful. But I think the question of whether there's a shortage in engineering is, is subtle. It has a lot to do with um, what field you're talking about, uh, what geographical area you're talking about. There's been this sort of consistent drumbeat about not having enough engineers in the U.S. And certainly that is the case in some areas and in some industries. Uh, but I don't think it's it's quite as simple as that. I guess I might turn the question more to, towards a shortage of what in engineering. I think there's a shortage of diversity in engineering. Right now, engineering is dominantly male, and women and minorities are hugely unre- underrepresented in engineering. There's a, diverse, a sort of shortage of perspectives in engineering. And so I think the real question is not so much about whether there are enough engineers, but enough of the right type of engineers for the next century, as we have talked about, engineers who are able to understand the human aspect of technology as well as the technology itself is what we're really going to need in the next century, and I think we're, we don't have enough of those kinds of engineers right now. Well, and I think that, and I think that's the that's the that's the real key. There have been the debates go on and will continue to go on as to whether there really is a shortage or not. But I think it's pretty clear that there's a shortage of the kind of engineers that meet the meet the challenges of our times. So we we were educating engineers in a paradigm of about 1955. It's a Cold War paradigm. It was it was invented uh, after World War II in response to those times. Um, times have changed, and and so the kind of the kind of breadth and the kind of uh, broad skill set, the ability to work with um, work with people for marketing, work with people in the public uh, sector. Uh, Understand some of the um, the impacts of, of the technology in a broader, um, non-narrow technical sense. Um, there's a there's a shortage of that kind of engineer for sure. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in high school, I did well in math and science, but it was at a time when my guidance counselor, you know, brought me in junior year and said, do you like to read books? And he saw my grades and I said, sure, I like to read books. He said, well, then maybe you should go into English. <laughs> you know, it was one of those, uh, yeah. gosh, you know, really, is that all there is? But I, I went with his advice and yada, 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 here I am. But um, if you had the chance to pitch engineering to high school students in America, what would you tell them? What is cool about being an engineer and why should they consider it? Well, I think I may start by asking the question, what do they think engineering is right now? And it's, it's a little depressing what um, high school students think that engineering is. Uh, there was a you know, poll done a few years ago that asked people to, you know, basically rate the extent to which engineers did various things. And things like uh, engineers care about the community. Uh, only about 35% of respondents thought engineers cared about the community. Engineers are sensitive social concerns, uh, 28%. Engineers protect the environment. 17% of people think that engineers protect the environment. And only 14% of people thought that engineers saved lives, right? So engineering has a real brand problem mm-hmm. <laughs> with respect to that. And in contrast, actually, the same people when asked about, say, scientists as opposed to engineers say that 82% of people say that scientists save lives or 77% that say that scientists improve the quality of life. So I think there's, there's an enormous misperception about what engineering is, and I think that's particularly true in, in young people. I mean, people, young people don't understand that engineering is fundamentally a creative, collaborative, engaging profession that provides the opportunity to make the world a better place. And I think that's, that's really what's cool about it, and we need to do a better job of conveying that to, to young people. Mm-hmm. Well, and I can tell you that you know a lot of kids have no idea what engineers even do. And without that information being conveyed to them by parents or teachers or guidance counselors, uh, there's not a huge amount of confidence on my part that will break through the branding. I mean, those are the, the, the adults in kids' lives mm-hmm. that explain to them what career paths are, are out there. And so perhaps those are the, the places where we need to get that information going. Yep. Bill, you know, so one of the things that's interesting is we go around and talk about, you know, what engineering is and what it's becoming and, and, and what this revolution is going to be. There's, there's a, I'm calling it engineering regret. When people hear this, I hear from, we hear from all kinds of people, men, women, um, different racial backgrounds, different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. We hear, we say, gosh, that's really interesting. I wish I had gone into engineering. Mm-hmm. If, it is the, if it is the kind of thing that we're talking about in a whole new engineer. And, and so I think there's a real opportunity um, to both attract the kinds of engineers that we need and, and, um, and, and, and change both the perception and, and in some sense the reality of, of what the engineering profession is. Absolutely. I think there's a huge opportunity and I think, uh, you know, there, there are many different organizations and, and groups of people, stakeholder groups who could be involved in that who may not currently be engaged in, uh, because they don't know themselves, uh, what engineering could provide in terms of opportunities and joy for our students of the 21st century. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we have much, much more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you're all tuned in. If you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Today we're talking with David Goldberg and Mark Somerville. They're co-authors of a brand new book called A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. It's a great read. And I have to tell you, I had just a, a little snippet of, of an experience with what uh, engineering education was back in the early 90s when I attended the University of Illinois, even though I was in the liberal arts and sciences section of the the campus because I was in Naval ROTC. I was required to take a couple of semesters of physics, a couple semesters of calculus, and it just so happened that they were considered weed-out courses for engineers, and it was miserable. They gave us the, the talk first day. Everybody look to your left. Everybody look to your right. Of the three of you sitting there, at least one of you will not make it. <laughs> and, and it was miserable. I have to say, my first physics exam, I was used to making A's when I was in high school. My first physics exam, I got a 16%, and I felt like an idiot. But because of the bell curve, that was actually a C+. Plus. It was ridiculous. It was the most horrifying experience for somebody who was used to doing well in school that I've ever been through. And I'd like to ask you guys what you think about this weed out uh, concept and the culture that goes with it and, and what impact that has on engineering education. Well, it, it's a really important uh, feature of the culture of engineering education. And it's, it, you know, we were talking before, well, why don't more people go into engineering? Why do, why do people not stay with it? But we, we end up getting uh, great kids from high school great grades, uh, they're used to success, they've taken, they took math and, and physics and, and chemistry in high school, and then they come to the university and they, they, they sit in, in these courses, and um, 
and and many of them are, are just so discouraged by this this weed out process um, that that they they drop out. So we we the 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 statistics of that look to your left, look to your right are correct. One of the, one of the one or two of the three will not be there next semester, mm-hmm. and so it's 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 statistically accurate, but it's it's pedagogically insane. Um, you know, so these are these are people who are capable, and and what's the purpose of of discouraging them in this way? And it's it it's it's not a matter that there's some uh, there's some objective measure of of that 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 that. that that seventeen percent, in some ways, represented um, that you that you only knew seventeen percent of the material, and, and in fact, it had to be curved severely. So, what's the mm-hmm. what's the whole purpose of that? I, we we've called that the math science death march, and, <laughs> and it and it's really harm it's really harmful. And 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 essentially, what we do is we put kids through this math science death march for two or three years, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then afterwards. If they've survived the math science death march, we allow them to take um, some engineering courses where they actually get the chocolate of engineering. Mm-hmm. So we give them spinach, 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 and then in their last year, maybe a taste of the chocolate of design, uh, the cool part of actually helping people and doing good stuff in the world. Well, what's that about? Let's, let's give people a taste at the beginning, and then, um, and then they can be motivated to, to, to eat their spinach, but then let's, let's, Let's balance the challenge. Challenge is good, and nobody's saying engineering education should become uh, become soft or easy. But how can we balance, uh, have a better balance or a different balance between challenge and support? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I think is, is really interesting about the, the weed-out um, terminology is the extent to which it really reflects a, a sort of fixed mindset type of culture within engineering, which is to say that it, it, re- it reflects the idea that there are certain students who will come in who are smart enough to make it, and certain students who come in who are just not smart enough to make it. And that's the way the world is, so we need to identify the smart ones and leave the, leave the dumb ones behind. And that, that kind of approach um, is one that really is simply counter to what the sort of best science tells us right now from a sort of educational psychology perspective. For example, Carol Dweck's work on mindset suggests that if you actually, instead of telling students on the day, okay, some of you are smart and some of you are dumb, Instead, you tell students on the first day, hey, all of you are capable of doing this, and we all need to work together to be successful, and if you really work at it, you're going to get better. Well, it turns out that when you do the latter, students perform a whole lot better, and Mm -hmm. we've certainly found that over and over again at Olin, that students are capable of far more than we assume that they're capable of. So when you have a culture that assumes students are not capable, you end up getting students who are not capable. If you're willing to actually throw that assumption aside and say, actually, I'm going to assume that these people coming in want to be here, that they're excited to be here, that they are whole, capable people, and I'm going to provide them with compelling challenges and help them be successful, I think you can get a very different outcome. Mm-hmm. And, people res- and people respond to this kind of different message, this growth mindset, almost immediately. As soon as you start to tell a different story, they respond, and, uh, and they're moved by it. And, and at Illinois, we actually we did that when we, we did our, exper- our, our first experimental um, a test of of the iFoundry incubator. Instead of we actually we repeated the look to your left, look to your right story to the to the students in 2009. We said look to your left. We said the old story is look to your left, look to your right. Uh, one or two of the three of you won't make it. And we said in iFoundry here at the University of Illinois now, look to your left, look to your right. 
those are the two people who are going to help you make it through a challenging experience. So we explicitly reframed the competition and the dog-eat-dog framing that had previously existed with, with a more positive collaborative message. And later, actually four, you know, four years later, students came up to us and said that moment changed their lives. It gives me chills, honestly, because if I had heard that message, I would have looked at, at the class that I was taking, even though I wasn't in the engineering track, I would have looked at it completely differently. And, and I, I think that would have been a, a really pivotal moment. And, and when I was at the University of Illinois, I mean, and I don't know how things have changed, but, you know, my husband and I reflect back on, you know, the, the readouts and the bell curves and the such fierce competition that people were afraid to even share notes. If you missed a class, forget about getting somebody else's notes because that was somebody else's competitive edge over you. And we were taught yeah. to compete fiercely. I think there's this question about what, what education is. You know, is, is education a filter? Is education fundamentally about, about competition? Or is education a process of promoting individuals' growth? Is it about collaboration? Is it, is it about pain or is it about joy? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that what we're trying to argue is that you can actually get a whole lot better outcomes if you approach education from a sort of perspective of joy as opposed to one of saying, this, this is going to be four years, it's going to hurt, but it's going to be good for you. Right. And Mark, you know, I'd really like for you to talk about Olin College because it's such an audacious uh, undertaking that you've you've been a part of. And, and for our listeners who don't know about the formation of Olin, t- talk to us a little bit about the history of the school and how it's operating today. Sure. So the, the, the sort of roots of the college are with Franklin W. Olin, who was an industrialist early, early in the 20th century. He was very successful, started the Olin Corporation. And then later in his life, decided to start the F.W. Olin Foundation. And that, that foundation was one of the biggest foundations that it's, when it was founded, and it spent years funding academic buildings and colleges across the country. So if you go to Cornell or you go to lots of particularly private schools around the U.S., you'll find the Olin Chemistry Building or the Olin Science Quad or whatever. Um, but in the 1990s, uh, one of the things that was happening nationally was a call for change in engineering education, and particularly change around moving from a purely sort of focused on engineering science type of approach to one that was focused much more on developing students' teamwork skills, their design skills, their sort of entrepreneurial skills, their communication skills, their ability to understand the sort of broader social context. Those calls for change were coming from a variety of sources, from the National Science Foundation, from sort of various business groups, from the Dean's Council, from the sort of U.S.-wide Dean's Council. And at that same time that those calls for change were coming about, the foundation was really at a point, a sort of inflection point in its existence when it was deciding how it ought to proceed and particularly trying to think about how to continue to support F. Franklin W. Olin's original vision of really supporting technical education. So after a lot of reflection, the, the foundation decided that the, way, the best way to actually influence change in engineering education and to respond to this call for change was to take the corpus of their endowment, about half a billion dollars, and use that to start a college from scratch. And so that's the sort of origin of Olin, was this college started from scratch in the, in the late 1990s with the dual mission to develop students as innovators and also to facilitate innovation in engineering education. Mm-hmm. So our first one of the, it, was one, it was one of the most audacious bets in philanthropic history. It's a, the poker equivalent of going all in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and I know that there were a lot of challenges at the beginning, Mark, but, you know, give us just a, a little snippet of some of the faculty that you pulled in, how you attracted students. Just give us a little bit more on, on how things happened at the Genesis to bring together what you have now in the operation of Olin. Yeah, so our, our um, first faculty we hired in, in 2000, and those faculty came from a variety of you know, top places around the country. I think probably the thing that unified the early faculty and that unifies the faculty today was a real passion about this mission of trying to, to improve engineering education. So in 2000, we had our first faculty come in. In 2000, the 2001-2002 year, we engaged in a sort of year-long design process with a set of um, high school students called the Olin Partners. So we recruited these students to come and help to design the college. There's a bit of a long story about that, but that's mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of high-level version of that is that these students were engaged from the outset and asking what kind of place should Olin be, what kind of education should it be. And over the last 10 years, we've, or since, since to that 2001 year when we first started to design the curriculum, 2002, we had our first uh, freshman class, we graduated our first class in 2006. And over the time since then, we've basically built out the curriculum and have gone from being a you know, completely unheard of college in in, mm-hmm. uh, in Needham, like there was a point in time when no one in the, in the town that we're in actually knew what Olin was, uh, to really being recognized, I think, both nationally and internationally. We're hosting, you know, hundreds of visitors each year from around the country and around the U.S. who are interested in understanding what's going on at Olin and what the, what the sort of innovations are. And we're certainly starting to see impacts both with regard to the kinds of things that our students are doing and also with regard to um, impacts with other schools that we've been collaborating with to try to expand the, the change that we're talking about. Now, Dave, you were a professor at one of the most respected engineering schools in the country, the University of Illinois. Tell us why you felt the need to challenge the status quo with the establishment of iFoundry. Talk to us about that whole endeavor. Well, uh, so I, I found is in this is in the same cu- uh, cultural soup that that Mark's talking about the the, the calls for change, the needs for change. Um, it 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 came about actually one day I was um, working with my colleague uh, Andreas Kangelaris, uh, who's who's now the the dean of engineering there, and and um, we were talking about innovation and creativity. And and uh, and how and why don't we? T- and Andreas said, "Well, why don't we teach these things to our our kids?" I said to Andreas, "I don't know." And he and he said, "Well, he jumped up and he said, i 'I'm going to go talk to the to the dean at the time.'" And he comes back. He, go, he goes to the dean. He comes back. He's all excited and he says, uh, um, "Dave, good news. Uh, the dean wants uh, is going to appoint a committee, and we're going to get to help him write the charge for the committee." And I got ticked off. I said, "Andreas, I." I'm getting too old to be on another committee that doesn't do something. And so, so the idea was that, um, and so we reflected on, well, why is it that change doesn't work? Why is it that whenever we, at an existing university, we go, um, we get together and we try to change the existing system, and we get into our meetings and our committees, and we have lots of discussions. Everyone says, yeah, the changes are needed. Um, and, and what we argued, we said that it's actually part of the exist. The system is set up not to change, and and it's it, and actually, given that we're on, we're talking about go green. It's a little bit like the siting of a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a NIMBY problem. Every everyone says, oh yes, transformation, great idea. Uh, just don't change my course. Right. 
And so then, then log rolling, just, just like in the siting of a nuclear power plant, uh, uh, the log rolling starts to take place. And, and people say, well, if you vote not to change my course, I'll vote not to change your course, and nothing changes. So the idea was, was to create an incubator, but not an incubator to create new businesses, which is the more familiar idea, but an incubator to, to try new educational things. It's, it's, uh, Olin's done an extraordinary job in starting with a blank piece of paper, but it's a different kettle of fish to, to try to change, I'm going to mix metaphor, try to, try to fix the airplane in flight. Right. And, and so, so how do you, how do you do that? And our, our thinking was, well, let's, um, it was, it was really a base, the, the basic idea was we have to innovate, um, but we also have to respect faculty governance. So we said, let's do all innovations on a pilot basis, and then we'll come back to the faculty for a vote. We'll have data, we'll have excited students, we'll have excited faculty, and, and we should be able to get the new curriculum changes in place. And so that was the, that was the beginning of iFoundry, and, 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 uh, and a, a, a different way of, uh, uh, in some ways, a dual operating system, as some of the change management literature talks about it, where you have the existing operating system and you create a separate and dual operating system that is that has this new culture that you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. And it's been extremely successful, and we can talk about that as, as we go along. But, you know, Mark, I want to hit on something that, that you guys talked about in the book. There was a time in America when engineers were also the captains of industry. I mean, they were leaders in a variety of some of the, the huge businesses that, you know, have, have shaped American industry. Talk to us about how Olin views the role of engineers in the future of business and entrepreneurship and how the school is actively ensuring that its students are ready for that role. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about how the role of engineers has really shifted over the years. I mean, if you think about early in the 20th century, as you said, the, the captains of industry, right? We think of engineers as being heroes and things like yeah. people like Henry Ford, right, mm-hmm. who's this engineer and entrepreneur who articulated a vision, he made it happen. And if you think about what he actually made happen, it wasn't just the it wasn't the Model T. It was the entire sort of socio-technical system of the assembly line, doubling the minimum wage, and combining that with the Model, Model T, and actually being seeing how to put those pieces together, and making that happen. And I think if you look at what has happened over the years since then, um, we've taken much more of a sort of divide and conquer approach, where you have designers who are sort of trying to understand the people, and engineers who are doing the technology, and marketing people who are who are doing the selling, and. What we're proposing is that we really need to question that sort of divide-and-conquer approach, that the problems of the 21st century are too complex to break up into those distinct pieces, and that instead we need to think about educating people who understand the people, who understand the sort of business side of things, and who understand the technology, which doesn't mean they need to be experts in all three of those domains, but it means they need to be able to actually work in all three of those domains. I mean, IDEO, which is a leading um, design firm, talks about the idea that innovation happens when you identify an idea that is both feasible, desirable, that is feasible, desirable, and viable. So feasible means it doesn't violate the laws of physics. Desirable means people want it. And viable means that actually you can make a business case for it. It actually makes sense. And that idea that students should actually be able to look at a situation and understand it from a feasibility perspective, a viability perspective, and a desirability perspective and then not only understand that and articulate a vision, but muster the resources necessary to make that vision happen, I think is, is really what we need in the, in the 21st century. It's not enough to be a technical problem solver in the world that we're moving into. 
Agreed. But how does Olin actually infuse uh, all of that into the experience that the students have while they're on campus? Oh, I think one thing that we were very explicit about is providing students with experiences where they take one or more of those perspectives in looking at a problem. So, for example, every student at Olin does a, a semester-long experience called user-oriented collaborative design, which is focused on this question of desirability and identifying people's needs, understanding people's needs, and coming up with ideas that are responsive to those needs. So students spend the entire semester going out and interviewing people that who live and work in environments that are very different from those of a student, understanding those people's needs, engaging in co-design with those people, and at the end of the semester, making a very strong case for what the right product is to address this, this set of people's unarticulated needs or unarticulated hopes. Mm-hmm. Um, by the same token, every student does a course uh, that's called Products and Markets, where they're asking this question, what does it take to articulate and realize a vision. How do I get people on board with this vision that I have? How do I make things happen? How do I identify resources when I'm, when I'm in a sort of resource-poor situation? And, of course, students also are engaged in activities that are focused on this feasibility question. How do I actually apply these, all of the sort of amazing things that we figured out in technology over the last centuries to realize this vision that I have. So those three sort of concepts of feasibility, desirability, and viability are, are infused through a variety of experiences in the curriculum. Some experiences focus more on one part of that picture, and some focus on the intersection between two or three of those, two or all three of those aspects, but it's, it's a theme that runs throughout the four years that students are at Olin. Mm-hmm. Dave, I'd like to ask you a similar question. What do you consider the quote-unquote basics of engineering education, and how does that differ from what the traditional model of engineering education would tell us are the basics? Yeah, so let's start with the, the, traditional, the traditional model. Um, so, the, so, and actually, this, this comes up in conversations with, with engineering professors when you suggest to them, so like many of the things that Mark was talking about, if you talk to them about those being essential. So, for example, if you talk about products or markets or entrepreneurship, or you talk to them about um, understanding human needs, if you talk about those things, uh, a traditional faculty member might say something like, but wouldn't that dilute the basics? And mm-hmm. by a quote the basics and what and what do they mean by that? They mean the they mean math science and engineering science, and and that's actually a fairly recent perspective on what en- the engineering basics are. The idea that math science and engineering science are the the core of what engineering is is really an idea that gained currency ar- around. Uh, the post-war era in the 1950s. There, it's not to say that those things weren't in the curriculum, but there were many practical subjects and design subjects and drawing and and things that were that were more practice-oriented in the curriculum prior to the the 50s. So the the idea that the basics are immutable and 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 don't change over time is 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 falsified by the by the the historical record. But there's a sense that that that. Engineering education views those things as primary. Um, I think you know many of the things that um, that um, Mark talked about are important, but I think there's also there's a sense um, that there's a set of of thinking skills or, or what sometimes people call habits of mind, but that go beyond um, just just thinking. And and one of the things that's so interesting about Ol- the, the approach Olin has taken is that there's a nice balance between knowing 
and experiencing in 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 the Olin experience. It's not um, it's not just a matter of theory. It's a matter of practicing and experiencing and living and showing up in a different way. And so, um, so so. So I think we would we we would argue that the that the that the basics are are broader and that they involve um, they involve many of the things that we take for granted in an engineering education right now the math and the science but also an emphasis on 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 things like on things like language and things like emotion and things like uh, leadership presence um, so there's there's a set of basics that is. That is not strictly about cognitive um, skill and knowing, but also about experiencing and being that are important to an engineer's education today. You know, I I am imagining that this whole talk of revolutionizing engineering education might make some universities nervous. Um, Mark, I'd like for you to give us your thoughts about how universities that have been for years engaged in engineering education must respond to this new world of open access. How do universities that have survived based on assembling experts who could bring in research grants continue to be sustainable in a world where access to expertise is found at a pretty low cost outside these institutions? Is there a, a new value proposition for schools engaged in engineering education? Yeah, well, it's certainly interesting how fast the, the world has changed for the university. I mean, a colleague of mine tells a story about a lecture that he was giving about a, a decade ago, and he's a material scientist, so he was talking about the Liberty ships, right? And the Liberty ships were these ships were built in World War II, and turned out there was a, a sort of material failure which caused the, the ship hulls to split in half, right? So he was giving this lecture and telling a story about how one of these ships broke in half and all these people died. He was trying to remember when, which, what year was it, what was the name of the ship, and the student in the back sort of raised his hand and said, mm-hmm. oh, it was a John P. Gaines in, in 43, right? And, and John was mm-hmm. like, how, how did you know that? And the student looked at him and he said, the Internet. <laughs> and, I Googled and, it. <laughs> and at that point, John was like, oh, this changes everything, right? Yep. Because... The, the reality is that information is ubiquitous now. It's free it's, it, for the most part, and it is certainly way more accessible than it, than it was 20 years ago. I mean, as much as there are all kinds of challenges around these massive online courses, there is a lot of stuff that used to be the sort of bread and butter things that a university would provide that are now available free. So I think asking this question, what does it mean to be a university, particularly from an educational mission perspective, um, we need to really query that. And I, I think that actually the, the extent to which information is ubiquitous and the extent to which information is sort of growing um, exponentially actually tells us a lot about what the answer ought to be to that question, which is that really we need to think not so much about filling students' heads with specific knowledge so much as providing them with the kinds of skills and helping them to develop as people in a way that's going to enable them to deal with a world where knowledge is expanding exponentially and where it's, it's ubiquitous. So things like mm-hmm. being able to, to teach yourself things, having the sort of grit to persevere, being able to work on teams, having communication skills, and graduating from college excited about doing engineering and jazzed about the four years that you've had and looking forward to that next challenge and ready to engage. Those, those types of things are as critical and probably more critical than the specific knowledge that we pour into students' heads. The reality is... Oh, go ahead, Dave. No, no, go ahead. I thought you were... No, go ahead, finish up. Yeah, I was just going to say, I I think that um, it's not that students should not be learning 
knowledge during the time that they are in school because clearly there is a set of there there is knowledge that students need to acquire but that knowledge needs to be acquired in the context of their developing as people and in their in in the context of their becoming the kinds of people who can deal with the challenges that they're going to face when they leave college. Mm-hmm. And so, and this isn't this isn't just theoretical. We're seeing it all around us. I mean, so look at look look at the average age of of some of the entrepreneurs that we're seeing these days and how it's dropped. You know, so um, you know when when Google came out, everyone thought, oh, it's, it's really interesting that Brynn and Page are so young. And then there was Mark Zuckerberg, and 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 they're getting younger. And mm-hmm. and and so. That is not po- that would not have been possible without access to um, to information, without access to money that that things like the openness of the web web provides. And so, the uh, uh, the this this reduction in information asymmetry. Uh, if, the, if you think about the change in uh, in, in corporate life that is has occurred, that um, uh, that that. That companies are getting called on the carpet for some of their practices that are that are harmful. They used to be able to control that. They used to be able to keep that out of the public eye. It's 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 harder to be um, an abusive company than it once was. It's it's harder to be a despot. Yeah. Um, it, you know you you know you have to have a country like North Korea where they don't have electricity if you want to control the web. So 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 it's this 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 kind of openness that we have. As Mark says, is is changing is changing everything, and and we're seeing it in so many ways. We're seeing it in MOOCs. We're seeing it in young entrepreneurship, uh, and 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 your question really hasn't been answered yet. We're in the process of trying to figure out what this means for for education, and and whether the educational system that we have, which is fundamentally based on expertise and on asymmetry and knowledge, whether that continues to exist in in the form that it has. Well, and I think, you know, chapter two of your book opens with a quote uh, that's from John Milton Gregory, who is the, the, the one who put the University of Illinois together at, at, in the 1800s. And he said, true teaching is not that which gives knowledge, but that which stimulates pupils to gain it. And I think that's just as true today as it was then. It's not about necessarily everything that a, a professor can teach uh, but also that that they teach this idea of lifelong learning and the thirst for lifelong learning um, that inspires students to keep going after school. Um, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio, so don't go away, folks. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
listen for Matters of Design with celebrity designer Dimitri Christian Skirakis as he explores the dynamics of interior decorating. Imagine your personal style and ideas being shaped by our guest experts as they highlight a mixture of home furnishings, lighting, textiles, and fashion from around the world. If you've ever had difficulty trying to plan how to do it yourself, why not collaborate with a designer and wind up with results like you've never dreamed of? Matters of Design can be heard live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guests today are David Goldberg and Mark Somerville, co-authors of a brand new book that you can find out on Amazon called A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. It's very good, a very good topic and, and an awesome book, very accessible, even if you are not an engineer, if you're, even if you're not an educator, but you care about the future and all the things that um, will make our future sustainable, will make our future joyful. Um, we're going to require a, a brand new set of, of thinking, a way of thinking about engineering, and that's going to require a new way of educating our engineers. And these two gentlemen are, are on top of it, and they're pioneers in their field. Dave, when you think about the monumental task of truly revolutionizing engineering education on a large scale, um, do you see the requisite change management skills already in place? in universities around the country, or is this kind of change going to require something new in the leadership of the Colleges of Engineering? I know you're working on this with your organization, Big Beacon. Talk to us yeah. about that. Yeah, so so the, the changes are, are so large this time around that it's really, it's really challenging the processes that we have in place. So universities are organized as, as in kind of a strange way. They're sort of... Um, there's a star culture where, where people who are academic stars are hired, and then there's, it's wrapped around that as a bureaucracy, a traditional uh, bureaucracy, almost governmental-like bureaucracy. And so, um, and, and what that does is it's actually well-tuned to creating new knowledge. And, and, and actually this organizational structure is, is ancient. It goes back to 1088 and the founding of the University of Bologna in the, in the 11th century. And so it's come forward, and we've had this assembly of experts, for, for a very long time, uh, and and it's done a really great job of accumulating the knowledge uh, of, of humankind over, over that time. And the challenges to this point have been such that that bureaucracy was able to move quickly enough uh, to allow things to change. But the pro- the problem now is that the as we were alluding to before the break, that the change now is fundament goes at the heart. Of the assumptions about information of of the university, so this challenge to 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 sort of the information monopoly or the information creation monopoly that universities have have had means that the whole thing has to change more quickly um, than than the bureaucracy is able to do and 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 
And so it's very, it's very hard. And as I was, we were talking before about the NIMBY problem. So when we go and we, and we use the bureaucracy and we get the, and we get the professors together to vote about change, the usual answer is no, we can keep things the same. And, 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 and that's not, and that's not working. And so, so, so part of what we need to do is come up with, uh, there's, there's sort of an inside game and an outside game. The inside game is that we need things like incubators. We need new schools like Olin. Um, and we and 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 we need to and we need to develop this kind of dual operating system that does these 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 modif- these fairly radical changes and test them before putting them in, into 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 place uh, more permanently. So that so and 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 one of the places that we can borrow for for that is is from the change management literature in corporations. Corporations have faced these these information forces and these changes for a couple of decades. And so there's, there's actually a fair amount of knowledge and experience in, in, in making these changes, but it has to be, it has to be brought in and, and used in a special way that respects the, the special governance nature of the university. That's the inside game. The outside game is right now every school views every other school as a competitor for the same students. And so what happens is people don't work together to make the, the changes together. They view each other as competitors. They they hide their innovations from one one another. But we we need to use we need to we need to have this collaboration. Uh, we call it collaborative disruption across the whole system. And it's sort of like the the open innovation movement and things like Unix and Android. We that we we're basically Mark talked earlier. We need a different operating system that works from uh, from joy and trust. And we need to move away from fear. Well, to 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 get that, we need to we need to work together and share our our results. And that's what the Big Beacon about is about. The Big Beacon is a is a dot connector. The Big Beacon is not another membership organization that's trying to to dominate some market. It's trying to connect the dots between different schools, between public organizations, private corporations, um, and and other stakeholders to try to to bring about this collaborative disruption that we need in order to make the changes these big changes that are coming. Mm-hmm. Well, and you see this happening in corporate America. Though there's plenty of competition, you also see consortiums that uh, gather around certain issues, where corporations that typically compete with one another can collaborate and actually uh, enjoy efficiencies of scale on certain things, even like uh, sustainable packaging or uh, you know sustainable supply chain issues and things like that, uh, where it really it benefits everyone to work together. Uh, on these things, it doesn't have to be the differentiator and, and the competitive edge that one company invests all the R and D in figuring out the solution. If they all figure it out together and, and share in in the discovery and the and the burden of discovery, uh, they they all win. And so I think there's there's a corporate model for that. You know, Mark, when I was reading the section on Olin and how it was formed. There was a lot of talk about curriculum. There was also a lot of talk about cultural changes. And I'm wondering, by percentages, how much of the changes you propose to engineering education are cultural and how much are curricular, and which is more pivotal? Yeah, well, I think I think our answer to that has has really shifted over the years. When I first came to Olin, I came to Olin, you know, as a uh, as a very enthusiastic young faculty member, and I thought that what we were going to do was develop the coolest curriculum anywhere, and then we were going to export that curriculum to the rest of the world. 
And I think that was a really naive perspective that I had early on. As we've um, worked more and more, we've found that really it's the, the sort of cultural variables that are critical for enabling the sorts of changes that we're talking about. I think one thing that we find useful is the, the framework that Teresa Mobley has used in, in doing research on creativity, where she asks the question, what, is, what are the characteristics of a creative person or what are the characteristics of an innovator? And there are sort of three that she identifies. One is relevant knowledge. They need to know some of the right stuff. Second is creativity skills or innovation skills, right? They need to have the sort of right set of skills, like the ability to come up with ideas and so on. And then the third that's really critical is innovators are distinguished by their intrinsic motivation. They do things not because someone is telling them to or because there's a bonus for it. They, they create innovations because they're excited about creating them. And if you ask the question, well, what does that mean from a curriculum and from a culture perspective? Clearly, curriculum, you can change what you teach in the curriculum. You can change some of the skills you teach in the curriculum. But it's the culture that determines whether or not students are excited and intrinsically motivated or whether they view their four years of college as being drudgery that they're going, getting through and they're purely trying to pursue the carrots of, of good grades. So as we've thought about what really matters, we think the, the sort of cultural variable is the one that that is both most important to address and also the one that you can address um, without having to necessarily change everything about the curriculum. And I think often people think of change as being really terrifying in this space because change requires that you completely rewrite the curriculum. And we've got this huge curriculum, and how are we going to do that? Well, really, if you can do something about the culture, you can make relatively small curricular changes but have big impacts on what student outcomes are and on student engagement through cultural changes. And I think this, this story at the University of Illinois is a great example of that. When I found we started, that was a one-credit-hour pea-shooter of a course, and, but the fact that they were intentional about making cultural changes ended up having some really long-lasting impacts. So we think that we've in many ways been asking the wrong question in trying to change engineering education. Everyone asks the question, well, what should we teach and how should we teach it? instead of what should the environment be like that we're doing this in. And, and Joe, well, it's, it's really the core message of, of the book, and, it, and, it's, and it's cultural, and it's also deeply emotional. Mm-hmm. And, and I think and that's put- great news for universities who may be thinking, well, we don't have the kind of money to invest that Olin did when they started something up from the ground up, uh, that this is something that can be achieved uh, on a relatively low amount of, of dollars spent. This is something that can be achieved anywhere. It's replicable, and that is great news. And, and gentlemen, I'm so sorry that we're out of time. I could spend the whole day talking with you about this. This is a great topic. You've got a great book. Folks, check it out on Amazon, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. It was a great, uh, great time talking with you both. I thank you for joining us. Folks, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.